There's a question that we all face today, and it's a question that maybe we didn't think about facing uh, when we were living in a different era, and it's the question of, is this real? When we scroll through our feeds on social media or we listen to something on TV, we're now asking the question, okay, is this true or not true? Is this real or is this fake? And I remember growing up, the, the biggest concern I had of whether something was real or fake was, was money, you know, was counterfeit money. Make sure you don't pass counterfeit money. But today, uh, when you get ready to share something you read on social media, you have to check, okay, do I know for sure that this is true? Is this a trustworthy source? Is this genuine? I can tell you that I had a moment, and maybe you've had this moment before, where you posted something only to learn later that you'd passed along something that wasn't real, that wasn't true. And while this is a new phenomenon, um, it's not an insignificant one. And it speaks to something that's happening more deeply in our world. In his 2008 book, The Trouble with Paris, Mark Sayers defined a term for me that I think speaks to the moment that we're living in today. And it is this term of hyper-realities. Sayers described these false realities or realities that seem better than the real thing. They're a hyper or heightened version of reality. And they, they give us a picture of something that just isn't actually true. One of the easiest uh, examples of this is magazine covers, where you have a model who has an entire team dedicated to their fitness, to their diet, uh, to all of the pieces of their everyday life. They show up for the photo shoot. There's a whole team designed and hired to make them look as good as they've ever looked. They're under the best lights and in front of the best photographer with the best camera. And then when that photo shoot is done... That photo was taken in a post-production and it's airbrushed, it's edited, where that person looks in many ways different than if you saw them on the street. And it isn't just cover models from far away, it's us up close, the people whose lives we envy or compare ourselves to on social media, the stories that we're told about getting a dream job or meeting the one or taking that trip or vacation that will somehow satisfy us in a deep, deep place. And if you've ever experienced one of those hyper-reality moments, Sayers would say that you found on the other side that you had consumed that thing, you had engaged that thing, and yet you still felt empty. You were told that thing was going to satisfy you, but what you were left with was dissatisfaction. And we're now living in a moment that I think many of us have never, ever experienced. If you've been to the grocery store, you've seen a scene like this where you, you go there and you have a list of all the things that you want to buy and you come home with the things you can actually buy. For the very first time, for many of us who've come of age during this internet age, you, you no longer can buy what you want, when you want, and get it how you want it. Even if you have the money, even if you have the technology, Amazon Prime no longer works in one day or two days. You can no longer get what you want delivered to your door. If you're a, a book lover today, I sure hope you like digital books. I sure hope you like audio books, because if you try to order a book from Amazon, it's going to take weeks and weeks for it to arrive. And this introduction into our world is bringing us along to what most of the rest of the world has known, an ongoing battle between what you want and what you can have. 
the satisfaction you want and the dissatisfaction you experience. As that old song said, I can't get, we can't get no satisfaction. And it's that reality and that experience that I want to speak to today as we consider and continue our series, Signs and Wonders. We're going through the book of John right now as we head towards Easter. As Clovis mentioned, it's two weeks away. And as we're going through John, we're reading through it on our own individually every day. If you're new to Cornerstone, there's a link right below our video on our website. If you're streaming it there, where you can see a link that says Gospel of John Reading Plan, and you can let us know uh, that you're following along with us, you can jump into that reading plan. It's also available on our social media feeds. You can read with us every day. Also on Sundays, we're going through John, looking at these miracles that Jesus performs that show us both who he is and a a picture of the life he's inviting us into. And we're going to continue today with the fourth miracle, the fourth sign or wonder we see in John's book. And we're going to learn this central truth, our big idea today from that passage. And it's this, that our problem isn't our hunger. Our problem is where we're looking for satisfaction. Today, I'm not going to talk about the problem of of hunger, the problem of desire. Desire isn't the problem. The problem is where we look to satisfy those desires. And before we jump into our text today, I want to speak to you. If you're somebody who has a history in church or would say, I'm fairly familiar with the Bible, you're going to have a problem today that we're going to have to get through. And that problem is, is that you may be familiar with the story we're going to look at today. You may be so familiar with it that when you realize where we're going, you may say, man, I've heard that before. I know all about that. Yeah, I've heard a sermon on that. I read a book about that. I'm I'm well familiar with it. And as the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And I just want to encourage you that you may have knowledge of this passage, but the goal of today is not adding knowledge. The goal is to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus that leaves us different on the other side than where we were when we came in, where we were when we turned on the device you're watching right now. And so if, if you're familiar with this passage as we get into it, I want to encourage you to ask God to give you an open mind, to give you an open heart, and to give you fresh eyes to see and experience what he wants you to today. So with that, Introduction, I want to encourage you to open up your Bible or turn it on to the book of John chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. We'll make sure that we don't lose you today and make sure we bring you along with us. John is about 80% of the way through the Bible. It's right after the book of Luke and it's right before the book of Acts. It's a biography of the life of Jesus told by one of his closest friends, one of his disciples who spent every day for three years with him. And we're going to read the first 15 verses today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Here's how it begins. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, he saw that there was a large crowd coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that they, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have open eyes, open hearts, and a a freshness in our perspective today to see from this text what you want us to see. Heavenly Father, we pray that we wouldn't just add some knowledge to our minds today but that you would transform our hearts and our lives because of what we discover about you, what you do in us and how we live differently on the other side. We pray that this would be a real moment with you, even though we're engaging in this digitally. And I pray selfishly that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, I wanna share with you four lessons from a Lunchable that went a long way. For those of you that don't have kids, Lunchables are these nice little packaged up meals, often composed of pieces of assembly of pizza or crackers, meat and cheese. My kids love Lunchables. We can't get them right now in the stores for the most part. My kids' favorite part of the Lunchable is the cookie at the end. And I know it's their favorite part because when I forget and I buy a Lunchable that doesn't have a cookie, I get yelled at when I come home. So We're going to look at this story of this child, this boy and his Lunchable that went a long way. And there's some lessons we learn about these people and some lessons that we can learn about us as well. Here's the first lesson. No one expects a miracle before it happens. No one expects a miracle before it happens. In this story, we're reading it with the entire story in view, but we need to recognize that they were living it moment by moment, just as we are living 2020 moment by moment. And in this story, no one was expecting a miracle. We know this because no one turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, hey, you figured out how to magically feed them. You figure out how to miraculously feed them. You figure out how to make food show up out of nowhere. No, no one is looking for this miracle before it happens. And many times in our own lives, when we're pressed into a challenging situation, we look to every natural human response, resource, and opportunity to meet the need we often don't expect the miracle either. What you need to know about this miracle is that this is the only miracle Jesus performed, which is recorded in all four gospels. This is in John and in Luke and in Mark and in Matthew. It's in all of them. And that's significant because the only other miracle that's recorded is the resurrection of Jesus. This is the only one. And it's significant, not just because it's recorded in all those Gospels, it's significant because this is the greatest crowd that he would have ever been in front of. This is the greatest crowd that Jesus would have spoken to. We'll learn in a little bit that it was even larger than some of us realize. And it's this moment that Jesus has an opportunity to do through this miracle what John tells us he was doing through all of his miracles. In John 20, 31, 
John says, this is why I wrote this miracle. But these are written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's doing this miracle. He's going to feed these people. Not just to show off his power, but to do two things. So that the people who see it might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, who had come to forgive their sins. And that by believing in that Messiah, those people who'd experienced the miracle, and us today who are reading about it, that we would have life in his name. We'd have full, abundant, victorious life, not just in eternity, but here and now today. And the text says, when Jesus looked and saw the crowd spread out, he told them to sit down on the grass. And likely, this moment happened along the lakeside, the seaside at the Sea of Galilee, now called the Sea of Tiberias. It was probably in the spring, in April, in this, when this moment happened. And so the grass would have been green, and the people would have spread out as they were following Jesus. And the text says that there were 5,000 men. That's why this is called the feeding of the 5,000 traditionally. But in this day, you would only record the men in your counting and neglect to record the women and the children. This was a sign of how patriarchal this culture was. And 5,000 men could have very well been 12 to 20,000 people. This would have been the largest crowd that Jesus ever spoke to. This would have been a massive crowd. And for us, I know not in the age of COVID, we're not having gatherings of even 10 people. In our world, I mean, 12 to 20,000 people is an average attendance for a, a basketball game or a hockey game or a concert. It happens all the time in cities across our country. But in this day, this is a massive gathering of people. It's a huge opportunity for Jesus. And so he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, hey, where can we buy food for this many people? And the reason why he asked Philip is that Philip is from this area. When, when we first meet Philip and he's called as, a, as an apostle of Jesus, he, it's said that he's from Bethesda. Also, Simon Peter, Andrew, other disciples are from this same area. So he turns to Philip and says, hey, this is your hometown. This is your turf. Hey, where can we buy food for this many people? And Philip says, it's there in the text, even 200 denarii. Would not be enough money to buy food so that just some of these people would get a bite. 200 denarii was basically 200 days wages in that, in that culture. Take out holidays and festivals and it's nearly a year's wages. Well, in our world, what's, what's a year's wages? Is it 35, 40, 50,000 dollars? Can you imagine how much bread that would buy? And in essence, Philip is saying even a year's wages is not enough to buy bread for all of these people to even have a little. Notice, nowhere before Jesus performs the miracle is anyone looking for the miracle. They're looking to what they can do. They're looking to what's humanly possible. And that's the first place I want to challenge you today is as you look at your circumstances, however your life has been impacted by the COVID-19 virus, are you looking at your circumstances based upon what is purely humanly possible? Or are you looking for what only God can do? 
Are you looking to what you can do in your own power and strength, what other people can do in their own power and strength, or are you looking at what only God can do? Are you leaving room for and expecting God to work in miraculous ways? Because as followers of Jesus, we don't just believe that this miracle happened 2,000 years ago by a God who used to work in miraculous ways. We believe that that same God and that same power is at work this day too. So the fir- first lesson is that no one expects a miracle before it happens. The second lesson is this. What you have is all God needs. What you have is all God needs. We meet in this story a boy who brought with him a lunch now we don't know how old this boy is the term that's used there is a a term that was used for a wide age group of boys it could have been a boy as young as six or seven or eight could have been a boy who was entering into teenage years or it could have been a boy that was just on the edge of adulthood we don't know how old that boy was but we know that he brought with him a lunch for that day And I have to believe, because I have kids, and if it was a younger boy, I'm assuming this boy left the house, got out the door, and his mom called after him, did you remember your lunch? Because that's what happens to kids. If they didn't have their shoes on, they would forget them. They'd forget their water bottles and their things everywhere. I get texts from friends, is this your kids that left in my house? Is this your kids that left at church? Is this your kids that got left at school? So the parent puts this, you know, meal together. This is just Scott's imagination in the story. The kids brings his lunch along. And what does the lunch include? Well, you know, kind of famously, the lunch includes five loaves. Now, when you think about a loaf, I think you think what I think about a loaf, which is a giant loaf. You think a big sourdough loaf or maybe a big baguette, a big, big loaf. That's not the loaf that was present in this story. The loaf was a barley loaf. And in this day, the word that was used for loaves was, was probably like a small roll, maybe even s- smaller than this. This was the smallest roll I could find this morning at Safeway. And it was a barley loaf. And barley was the grain of the poor in the day of Jesus because it was the cheapest grain. This boy was not wealthy. He was poor. He didn't have a massive lunch. I mean, five sourdough loaves. How many people could that feed? No, he had five small loaves. Just enough to feed himself. The story also says that that there were two fishes. Now we see fishes and we think, you know, I think it's actually fish, two fish. But we think like a, a, a trout. You know, I bought these also at Safeway this morning. You know, we think a big fish. He had two fish, just big sized fish, maybe even bigger than this. But in actuality, he probably had he probably had two small fish. I bought this canned fish at the store today. I wish you were here in person. Could you, you could smell like I could probably two small fish, small like that, you know, anchovies, sardines, really small. This would have been just enough to feed this young boy. This would have been just enough for this boy to, to satisfy himself and and maybe not even totally satisfy himself. Cause if you're a parent right now, you're experiencing what I am, that Your kids are at home every day. They eat breakfast at 7. They want a snack at 8, a snack at 9, lunch at 10. They want dinner at 2. They just never stop eating. And you're discovering what I'm discovering, that kids don't get full. They just get bored of chewing. And so in this time, this boy brings his lunch to Jesus with the help of Andrew, a lunch that would have just been enough to feed himself. And what does Andrew say in John 6? 
There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus, we have something here, but there's no way that it's enough. Yeah, we have something in our hands, Jesus. We have something at our disposal. But what is it in light of this massive crowd and this massive need? Jesus, we have something. But this something in the face of the need really feels like nothing. And maybe that's where you are in the midst of COVID-19. You see what's in your hands. You see what you have. But in the face of your need, in the face of your crisis, in the face of what's there, you're saying, Jesus, this is all I have, but it's way less than I need. This is all I have, but in the face of what's in front of me, how on earth is this enough? And this is the place where we're going to be pressed. Is this just a fairy tale? A story that happened a long time ago that makes for good Sunday school content for kids. Or is this something that really, truly happened? And is this insightful into our hearts and our lives about who Jesus is and the same invitation he's making to those people then he's making to us now? To trust that this is what he does. And this is the challenge I have for you. What would it mean if you began to believe that what you have is all God needs to do the work that he wants to do? What would it mean if you believed that what God had given you was exactly what he was going to use to provide for you? And and maybe this hasn't hit you really hard yet. Maybe you've been relatively unscathed in COVID-19 and it's been just more an inconvenience than anything else. Well, what if what God is doing is he's putting what's in your hands, what you have to be what he uses to not just meet your need, but other people's. Maybe your stash of TP isn't just for your bathroom, but others. What if your stash of food isn't just for you, it's for others? What if your savings account isn't just for you, it's for others? What if what you have is all that God needs to not only meet your needs, but the people around you's needs? And this is where crisis tends to challenge us and tempt us to turn inward and look inward and think of ourselves and depend on ourselves as opposed to live open-handed, trusting in God to meet our needs and asking God, why have you given me what I need? Like this boy who thought he was bringing his lunch and in actuality he'd been entrusted with all of their lunch. Is what you have all God needs? What would it mean to believe that? What would it mean to trust that? This week I was talking with our staff about this message and Jen Myers, who's our children's director, you know, helped me to think about this passage in a unique way. She said, I I was thinking about this passage long before I knew you were preaching on it, long before COVID happened. And I was thinking about the posture that Jesus called these people to put themselves in. He called them to sit down on the grass, which which is a, a position of surrender, she said. It's a position of trust. When you sit down, you're very vulnerable. She said, and isn't it interesting that Jesus calls them into a position of surrender and trust just before he meets their needs? 
And she said, I felt like God was challenging me even before this situation happened. Will you trust me? Will you surrender to me? Will you put yourself in a place where you feel vulnerable because you're trusting in and depending on me? And that, that is exactly what, what I have is all God needs looks like. It may feel like it's vulnerability. It may feel like it's dependence. It may feel like it's surrender because it is all those things. What you have is all God needs. Number three, third lesson. Too often, what we find is that we're chasing what will not provide ultimate satisfaction. What we're chasing will not provide ultimate satisfaction. When I was younger, I was told this this myth that people who do not have a relationship with Jesus cannot find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction. I was, I was told that in the context of church. But the truth is that that's a myth. You and I both know people who do not have a relationship with Jesus, who are not followers of Jesus, who don't believe in the Bible, and every day they find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction in their work and in their life. The problem is not that people don't find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction. The question and the problem is ultimacy. Is that meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction that you're finding, is it ultimate? Is it eternal? Does it last? Or does it run out and you need more? Does over time, the little that you experience mean less and less, and so you need more and more of that to feel full? And like a a cup with holes in it that you keep pouring in there, and it doesn't seem to stay full. So it happens in this story, because after the people eat, after it's all collected, Jesus goes away. Why? Because they want to make him king. Because when you find somebody who can feed you in a culture that doesn't have refrigeration, doesn't have grocery stores, where each day you're looking for new food, when you find somebody who has the power to feed you like that, you make that person king. And Jesus saw that, and so he goes away. People find him later in John 6, and this is what they say. When they found on their side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he answered them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, God, the father has set his seal. So they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Echoes of what John says later in 20 verse 31. So they said to Jesus, what sign are you going to do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They ate bread in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them then, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. They are obsessed with bread and they think that bread is going to satisfy their hunger. And Jesus is about about to change the story on them. He says to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. 
They're asking for another miracle. They're asking for more bread. They're looking for satisfaction from a place that will never last. And Jesus says, you came looking for more physical bread, but here's the pitch. Here's the catch. I am the bread of life. You're looking for your satisfaction in what I give you. I'm looking for you to find that satisfaction in me. My kind of summary of what Jesus says here is to the people, you are hungry, but you have a hunger that only I can satisfy. And I think one of the things that's happening in our world today is that we're seeing the exposing and the revealing of the places that we've been looking for meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction as empty and unable to provide ultimate satisfaction. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Well, when you were looking to your job to give you ultimate meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction, and you're told that you're no longer needed and you no longer have work, that's empty. When, when you were looking to people admiring what you posted about your life and your experiences online and you can't leave your house, <laughs> there's only so much you can show. And, and you find that the likes and the comments are coming the way they used to. Maybe you put your hope and your meaning and your fulfillment, your satisfaction in the amount of money you had socked away in your savings or your retirement or in the stock market. And in three weeks, you lost one third of that. And you saw just how little control you had and how empty that place could be. What Jesus is saying to these people, in essence, is are you chasing the bread of life or are you chasing the crumbs of this world? Are you looking to things that are ultimate or are you looking to things that will leave you feeling empty? And I can tell you, even in this season, I've had to step back and say, okay, am I looking for the right thing or the wrong thing? And if I realize I'm looking for the right thing, am I looking for the right thing in the right place. I'm looking for the right thing in the wrong place. It's not bad to find meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and satisfaction in our work. It's not bad to find that in our experiences in this world, but make sure that you don't expect those things to satisfy your soul. Because what Jesus is saying is that thing is never going to fill that need. I am the one who comes to meet that need. I'm the one who provides that ultimate satisfaction. Fourth and final lesson, Jesus knows what's in every heart. If there's kids watching, I want you to tune in and listen to me right now. I know that this is an incredibly hard and difficult season for you. So many things about your lives, kids, have changed in the last few weeks. You're not going to school. You're, you're doing school at home. And maybe you're discovering what my kids are discovering, that I'm a better dad than I am a teacher. And this is hard. It's hard in all of us. And I know you're learning about this virus and, and you're trying to make sense about what's going to happen. And maybe there's some things that you want to experience that you can't experience right now. Some places you want to go that you can't go right now. Some, some plans you had that, you, that, that had to be canceled. And that's sad and that's hard. And you may have some emotions in you and some, some big emotions and some feelings. And what I want you to know is that Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're feeling, and he wants to walk with you through that. 
So what I love about this story is it shows us that Jesus knows what's in each and every one of our hearts. And often he asks us questions and he leads us through experiences, not so that he will learn what's in our hearts. He already knows, but so that we will learn and that we can have a conversation with him about it. So it happens in this passage in John 6. It says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. I see that. You know that. But you're not seeking me because of the signs you saw, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He's trying to show them, hey, this is what I see in your heart. Your heart isn't for me. Your heart is for what I can give you. You don't want me. You want my stuff. You don't want the provider. You want the provision. I'm a means to an end for you. And if you have ever seen yourself in someone else's eyes as a means to an end, you've never felt more devalued and insignificant. None of us want to be loved or liked or interested in for what we can give people. We want to be loved for who we are, not what we can give. And so Jesus goes on and he teaches the people. And in John 6, 60, it says many people heard what he was teaching They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? He said, Scott, what happened between verse 36 and verse 60? What was so offensive he taught? You want to know what he taught? It's right there in your Bible if you want to look. He says, if you want to have a part of me and what I'm doing, if you want to taste and see that I really am who I say I am, then what you need to do is you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like that's in the Bible? Yep, it's right there. John 6. I think verse 53. Well, what, what did he mean? Was that about communion? Well, I think many place, people, people believe it is about communion. Because he says later on in John, he raises a piece of bread and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And he raises a cup, communion, that we're going to celebrate next week. But they didn't know about communion then. Communion was weeks, months, years away. So what did he mean? He was calling them to not just taste of what he provided, but to experience him as the true one who satisfied them. To not just fill themselves with the bread that he made, but to come and experience union with him, oneness with him. To not look to the bread, but to him as satisfaction. And what happens in John 66, John 6, 66, I'm sorry, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When he challenged them, because he knew it was in their heart, do you want me or my miracle? Do you want me or my bread? Are you, am I going to satisfy you or are you looking for the bread to satisfy you? Many of them go, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with this. This is not what I signed up for. I'm not going to follow you anymore. I made a little chart of what happened that day. The peak of his ministry in terms of size is the feeding of the 5,000. And then immediately the bottom drops out as people scatter because it was too hard. In just a matter of days, Jesus went from the peak of his ministry in terms of size to the trough. From the biggest crowd to the scattering of the crowd. Why? Because Jesus was trying to show them that he was the source of their hope, not the bread he gave them. He was trying to challenge them to put their hope in him, not the provision. And he wasn't saying, hey, it's bad that you're hungry again today because you ate yesterday. What he was saying is you need to come, not just looking for your bodily satisfaction, but looking for your soul satisfaction. 
Isaiah, the prophet, many years before, hinted at the same thing, where he said, Come, everyone who thirsts to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is satisfied? This is a great reminder for us today that many of us have spent our lives and our money and our labors for things that left us feeling empty in the end. We've worked for things and then we got what we wanted and it wasn't what we thought we wanted. So he says, listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Those things aren't bad. But incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. Maybe what God is doing through COVID is he's exposing for you what is truly in your heart. That you have been looking for the right things in the wrong places. And you've been looking to these things that have been taken away from you or are in jeopardy for what they can never provide and for what only Jesus can give. This is why in John 6, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The reason that he did the miracle, the reason that he's at work is that we would believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for us, for our sins, to forgive us, make us brand new and lead us into a life that is abundant beginning today and continuing into eternity. That's why Paul says in Titus 3 that Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the spirit. What Jesus came to do through each of these signs and wonders was to show us that he was the Messiah and to invite us into real life in his name beginning now. To show us that works done by us in our own righteousness cannot save us. We're seeing it here and now. It doesn't matter how much money you have. doesn't matter how successful you are. You're still in danger, potentially, of getting this virus. All of us, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, will die. All of us are broken and all of our righteous acts do nothing to reconcile us to God, to make us right with him. Only what Jesus does makes that possible. And the satisfaction and the peace that we so desperately want in this storm, it will only come as we begin a relationship with Jesus, as we believe in him and we receive the life that he's offering us today. If you're following along on your handouts, I want you to turn over to the next steps section I want to encourage you to do these things this week, even as we're not together in the same place. And the first step is this. I want to encourage you to start praying for and expecting God's miraculous work. All of us have the very same temptation and proclivity in front of us that was there for the disciples. To look at a hard situation, a challenging situation, a huge problem, and look merely to our own efforts, our own resources, our own ingenuity, human things to solve the challenge. And instead, I want to challenge you as I'm challenging myself to look for God to be at work and to claim that the same God who did that then is alive and at work and powerful now. Number two, I want to encourage you to trust that what you have 
is all God needs to do his best work and to surrender to that. Here's what that looks like on a practical level. This week, I want to encourage you to get a piece of paper out and make a list of all that is in your hands, all that you have. You can make that as exhaustive or as focused as you want. What is it that God has given you? And once you made that list, I want you to claim this truth over it, that what I have, all these things, is all God needs to work. And then surrender those to him. To trust them to him the way that little boy did with the loaves and the fish. And say, God, this is what I have. I believe that you are capable of doing exceedingly and abundantly more than I can ask or imagine with this. I believe this is all I need, all you need to do your work. So I trust it to you. And I trust myself to you. Number three. Ask yourself, where am I chasing after bread that spoils? Where am I pursuing ultimate satisfaction in sources that only provide temporary satisfaction. Where am I looking for something that only God can give from a source that is not God? And then number four, ask Jesus, Jesus, what's in my heart that isn't aligned with you? If Jesus knows what's in your heart, then wouldn't it be wise to ask him, hey, what do you see, Jesus, that I don't see? What are you aware of that I'm not aware of? What in my heart is not aligned with you? And over the next two weeks, between now and Easter, Jesus, would you begin to work at realigning my heart with yours and revealing what needs to change? Let's pray.